Hi everyone and welcome to the Genomics Lab podcast, the podcast about current research in the field of genomics. We are your hosts, Eleanor Watson and Olivia Grant, two PhD students in the genomics group at the University of Essex. Join us as we speak to researchers in the field about their current research and their journey into genomics. Good morning everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Genomics Lab. We're actually coming pretty live today. This is the morning of the podcast release because we've been a bit all over the place this week. Um, So real time Ellie and Liv are pretty tired or actually still in their pyjamas. Yeah. Having a coffee. I have a group meeting in 15 minutes so I need to get it together. We do need to get it together Um, but we have we have a really fun podcast today don't we um so fun we had lo- lots of fun yeah. filming this with Kat yeah no it was really really fun we talked about um so much stuff so much funny stuff like I still can't get over the whole noodle snake mix up like guys when you listen to it you're you're all gonna laugh because you'll all understand I literally <laughs> when I listened back to it I was cracking up all over again <laughs> it was so funny it was really funny. And yeah, um, we talked about what, what biologists have in their freezers. Um some weird admissions. Some, yeah. This was this was like um truth or dare for cat, wasn't it really? It really <laughs> all was. the truths came That's pouring that. out. <laughs> um and how to get on to your PhDs, how to impress potential supervisors. Is sleep in your drug. <laughs> got some some good tips. Yeah. Just stalk yeah. them across America. <laughs> But anyway, on a serious note, yeah, we're talking about population genomics and genomics research in rattlesnakes, which is so cool. So, yeah, we hope you all enjoy it. It's a long episode, so we'll cut the intro short and we hope you guys enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Genomics Lab. Feels like uh, we always say this recently, but it does feel like it's been a while since we've done a recording. It has been a while. This time, I think it has been a while. Um, So today is very exciting. We finally got Kat on. So we have Kat Ivy from the University of Texas at Arlington. So hello, Kat. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited you're here. Woo! Hi. It's great to be here. It's exciting to be here. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself introduce yourself to our audience uh yeah so I'm a ooh, I was gonna say I'm a first year PhD student I can't even say that anymore I'm gonna be a second year PhD student uh in Dr. Hey. I know <laughs> oh, man. I survived my first year of my PhD <laughs> um yeah, I'm a second year, going to be a second year PhD student in uh, Dr. Todd Casto's lab. Um, it's a genomics lab. So I am, if you kind of split our lab into, you know, two little segments, there's the functional sides of functional genomics. Uh, and then there's the population genomics or pop gen. I'm on the pop gen side, but. Um, and our, like, if we have any, I don't know if they exist, but if we have any dedicated listeners, they will recognize that name because we did film an episode before with Nikki who was also in the lab that you're now in yeah yeah there's a lot of us <laughs> <laughs> and it sounded like a successful lab so like yeah I, you sound like a really good lab oh my god it sounds so interesting so I'm excited to hear like your perspective on things 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I, it's funny because before I came here, I never, I never in my wildest ever thought I would be in a genomics lab ever, let alone my PhD. I was struggling with the decision to go into my PhD because, well, we could, that is a whole other topic. We, I would be more than happy to talk about that, but um, my best friend, imposter syndrome and all, you know, we're very tight. Um, <laughs> but the fact that I am in a genomics lab and absolutely loving what I do is just every single day I wake up and I'm like, wow, I'm here. I'm doing what I'm doing. I don't always know what I'm doing and I don't always fully understand what I'm doing, but I'm doing it mm -hmm. um, and it's great. Um, but yeah, I am on the population uh, pop gen side of the house and looking at uh, within population genomics, uh, uh, rattlesnakes, different uh, species of rattlesnakes throughout the Western United States. There's different species of them. and looking at specifically where I'm starting right now is looking at hybridization that's occurring uh, through a couple different species of rattlesnakes and uh, looking at gene expression, looking at you know dis dysfunctionality within the hybrid zone with these rattlesnakes. Um, so yeah, building, building on that. What got you onto rattlesnakes? Because... <laughs> I feel like, so I'm looking at mouse, mice, like you fall into that, you know, there's no choice over that. Everyone does mice. Um, sorry, my guinea pigs are squeaking away. Clearly they're offended that yeah. I'm talking about mice <laughs> and not guinea pig rodent. Um, but rattlesnakes, I can't imagine just turning up to the lab and your supervisor being like, right, so we've got this really good model organism, rattlesnakes. So did you decide to go for rattlesnakes? or and why <laughs> and is it a model organism or are you just interested in yeah just yeah not as a model organism obviously as a them themselves but why are you so interested in them yeah so this in short in short to answer that question yes absolutely i came to this lab to work on rattlesnakes like i okay. love rattlesnakes i love reptiles uh, even okay. going broader, I love reptiles and amphibians. Even broader, that whole little world of creepy crawly things is called oh. herps. They're literally called herps. So the study of herpetology <laughs> is the study of reptiles and amphibians. So, yeah. um, like I said, don't the start word dropping. Don't start word dropping. We know how this ended last time. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. yeah. Last time we spoke with Kat, I found out what the word phallic means. Was it phallic? Alex, come on and we uh, were quite yeah. shocked that she didn't actually know what it meant you i'm an innocent I study soul. male fertility live you should know what phallic means i am an innocent soul what can i say shut up <laughs> my master's advisor is going to listen to this episode and and just like oh my god cat seriously you brought it on this episode technically i brought it up <laughs> well Okay. All right. You could take the blame for that. Yeah. yeah. See, Emily, it wasn't just me. <laughs> My master's advisor, uh, Dr. Emily Taylor, which is where I was going to uh, go. How I got interested in snakes and reptiles in the first place mm -hmm. was because in 
my undergrad, I was pre-vet. I, I wanted to go to vet okay. school and become a doctor, essentially. I was a vet tech for eight years. I loved what I did. Oh, wow. I, I still feel like to this day, I could put an IV catheter in my dog at this very moment as she's looking at me <laughs> dad. Um, like, Please no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I realized very much later, I was gonna say very early on, it wasn't very early on, much later uh, in my career towards the senior year of my undergrad that I didn't wanna go into veterinary medicine. Um, I wanted to work on wildlife. I kind of wanted to be the Steve Irwin, whatever Steve Irwin did. I feel like a lot of biologists talk about this. Whatever it was that Steve Irwin did, I wanted to do that. You know, like I didn't know that that was, you know, oh, I'm a biologist, you know? So <laughs> I, I decided to take some, um, you know, zoology courses. One of them was ornithology. And then that was fun. Um, bird people are crazy. I don't know how you guys wake up at four in the morning to go look at birds. That's <laughs> Um, but then I also took herpetology with Dr. Emily Taylor, and that's when I decided her. I want to be just like her. I want to do what she's doing because she stood there, and I, I'm sure you guys have had this one professor that, like, they just stand there in front of the class, and, like, they're not even teaching you. They're telling a story of their passion, and she yeah. sold mm -hmm. the world of herpetology to me instantaneously I fell in love what incredible organisms herps are um the amphibians are adorable and cute but I of course went in the more uh, uh direction of reptiles so my master's degree I ended up going I didn't go to vet school which I'm okay with I was it was actually a very bittersweet that I I didn't get into any of the schools I applied mm -hmm. to uh, bitter because it's like, oh man, you guys rejected me, but sweet yeah. as in like, I did not want to go to vet school. Yeah. So I ended up going back to Emily and telling her, I will do whatever it takes. I want to be in your lab and I want to get my master's with you. There's nobody else. I adore you. I find you very inspirational. I want to be your master's student. She's like, okay, let's work <laughs> on getting you in. And I did my master's on uh, thermal ecology. I, I went from pre-veterinary medicine, then jumped right into thermal ecology, looking at how climate change is impacting a small population of this federally endangered lizard that's just mm -hmm. right in the Central Valley of California called the blunt-nosed leopard lizard. They're super cute. Um, <laughs> oh my God. They're so cute, dude. Look up pictures of them, they're so cute. Um, and that was awesome. That was so cool. It was my first time collaborating. I got to collaborate with the Bureau of Land Management, which is a government agency here that manages the land. Uh, I got a publication out of it, which was amazing. I got to mentor over 20 students out in the field, undergrads. It was awesome. And so I knew that I wanted to do something with reptiles going forward, but I didn't know if I wanted to go into my PhD. And so the reason, the reason why I struggled with it so much was because I was comparing myself to so many other people. Like mm -hmm. I felt like people were asking the, like these really intense, awesome scientific questions that I, I was like, how do you come up with these questions? And they're like, well, if you want to go to P into your PhD, you need to know how to ask these questions. And I don't disagree with them, but you know, I just wasn't quite there yet. And like, now that I'm in my PhD, I'm now learning to ask these questions yeah. more and more. Yeah. 
And so I had a lot of people telling me that like, well, you should already be asking these questions now. And so it made me feel like, oh man, I don't think that I'm, I'm, I'm fit for this. I don't think I'm fit for academia. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had at the time, you know, a little faux hawk, my, the, shi- the sides <laughs> of my head were shaved, you know, I'm, I'm completely tatted up and all that. And like, there was just all these things that were just dampening how I felt about going into a profession of academia. I just didn't feel like I was good enough is really what it came down to. And it took one friend of mine who is a professor at a community college back in California to tell me that I could do it. That, you know, if anybody's going to go into the world of academia and shake it up, it's going to be you and you're going to rock it. Uh-huh. And so that's, uh, when I decided I was going to go into my PhD. I think it's so important that there's people like that professor that spoke to you. And then also like my PI, like my PI literally took me on like from my undergrad um, on a bioinformatics PhD with like literally, like I'd never taken a bioinformatics module like in my life. And something he always says is like, um, like he always says, and I'm so sure it's directed at me, (laughs) is that um, skills can be learned, but passion can't. Yeah. Um, and yeah he always says that and I just always think like I feel always feel like I'll always feel indebted to him for like giving me the opportunity because I don't think anyone else would have so I think it's really important that there's people like that oh I'm interested in everything I have questions about everything even though I knew I wanted to work on reptiles I'm just so fascinated to learn literally about everything is it going to be ecology all right let's learn more about ecology is it going to be genomics all right let's do it is it going to be proteomics let's do it um and so that that same friend that was a professor at uh the college um back in uh, california introduced me he told me he he told me he was doing field work with um uh todd my now pi and he texts me, he's like, look at Todd Casto right now. You need to apply to his lab. Like you need to do it. You would fit in perfectly. <laughs> do it. So I looked him up and I immediately emailed Todd and I, you know, I was like, I'm a vet tech. I know how to do lab work. Like I tried to make that connection of like, you know, oh yeah, I draw blood. I could run lab work to the, you know, like doing the same lab work, like, you know, d- extracting DNA. It's not the same, but, is it? <laughs> no, it's not the same at all. <laughs> oh man, I still have that initial email I sent him. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> anyway, um, I, to this, like Todd says all the time that the reason why he let me in his lab is because I slept in my truck bed at a conference. I'm glad that's how that <laughs> sentence ended. Um, yeah, so I'll explain that story. And I think, it, Olivia, it ties into what you said that it's, you know, you could teach somebody the, you know, the skills of what it takes to, you know, to be a bioinformatician, to work in a lab or whatever, but to teach someone that passion and the yeah. excitement, you, you can't, you can't do that. It has to come from the person themselves. And I think that might be what Todd saw in me because I'm always so excited to mm-hmm. just jump in. I'll do whatever it takes. And so this conference um, took place in right on the border of Arizona and New Mexico in the middle of summer. It was July of oh, 2019. God. So very, very hot. We're talking like 100 degree weather. Mm. And uh, the university that I came from for my master's didn't have a lot of funding um, for us to go to conferences. I think I had used up all of my funding. So 
everything for me to get to this conference was coming strictly out of my pocket. Um, mm -hmm. And at the same time, uh, my, my master's advisor, Emily, was like, there's no reason that you should be going to this conference. I want you writing this manuscript because my manuscript was still in like this bullet point, you know, format. Like I needed to be writing this manuscript because, you know, I had a collaborator of the BLM. And so um, she wanted me to be working on that, but I was, I was so hard headed. I was like, no, I'm going to this conference. I want to meet Todd because Todd was going to be there. And so I started a GoFundMe and I put that on my Instagram and I raised a little over $2,000 from oh random people all over my Instagram who were so excited for me to meet my potential PI. I jumped this is like an in. academic love story. <laughs> it is. So I jumped into my 1999 Toyota Tacoma with no AC. The AC was broken on it. I had very little money. Oh, so so going into this trip, I didn't have any money. As it is, when I was in my master's, I worked 25 to 30 hours as a vet tech, and I also taught. So how I was able to do research at the same time was just incredible. I, I never slept. You know, I was either in surgery thinking about my research or I'm teaching and grading thinking about my research. Like it was just nonstop. So, but even still the cost of living in California is just, whew. So my yeah. money went to literally just trying to survive. So I raised this money and I tried to, you know, not blow it away. So I did not get any hotels. I did not eat out at fancy places. I literally ate canned soup on the road and had granola bars. And that's it for, I think it was on the road for about three weeks, almost a month, because then there was another conference that I drove up to in Utah um, where I actually presented research there. And I actually got a real shower. Oh my God. Conference. I was actually in a hotel for that one. But so when I went out to Arizona to meet Todd, <laughs> I'm like dingy in like workout shorts and a tank top. And I'm like, Hey, it is so wonderful to meet you. And he's like, where were you guys sleeping? Cause I was with my friend who's that professor back in California. And um his name is Josh he was like oh we're just sleeping out on a plot of land like she's in her truck bed in a tent and yeah <laughs> and so oh my kind gosh of the, the running joke that Todd tells people like oh yeah the reason why she's in my lab is because she slept in her truck bed at a conference well but no was, one can say that you don't I'm have passion literally willing to do whatever it took to yeah. meet Todd and like I shook his hand and I told him I'm like I, I, I will be your, your PhD student. I will be it. I'm applying and you will let me in. He's like, yeah, absolutely. this sounds great. And then like it came to the, the application process and all that. And I was like, hey, so I'm in, right? He's like, well, I mean, you need to make it past all of the, you know, the nitty gritty. And I was like, I need to start applying to other labs. Oh my God. And then that's when I applied to other labs. So, but I, yeah. I always knew I wanted to go into Todd's lab. I was like, that's the lab I want. I want to do that. And it was because, you know, I didn't know a lot about the genomics world. I didn't know anything about, you know, molecular anything. And just based off of my, you know, reading of the literature on thermal ecology, there were so many unanswered questions that I had about, you know, gene expression, what's going to happen in the future with climate change on the rise. And, you know, and so I knew 
felt, I shouldn't say I knew, I felt that where I was going in my interest of, of you know, thermal ecology was eventually going to hit a glass ceiling for me at least. And I wanted to go in a different direction that was potentially going yeah. to be growing more, which I mean, the, the field of genomics is, it seems so limitless. Changing all the time, isn't it? All growing always. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. It, it, I took genomics uh, last semester in the spring and Okay. It blew my mind that we still don't truly know the entire human genome. We have no idea. Yeah. Like, that's incredible. That blows yeah. my mind. And are we ever going to actually know? Like, will we ever know? Or are humans and their, like, are we evolving too quickly for our brains to keep up and the science to keep up? Like, who knows? Will we ever crack the whole thing? There could be like yeah, a whole, that's cool. like, there could that's be a cool. whole extra layer of genomics that we don't know about you know yeah it's coming in the future even a crazy we'll be long gone we'll be six feet under exactly like you know like before people knew what epigenetics was they would have been like no mm -hmm. we know it but you never know there might just there could be a whole extra layer and there will yeah. be one day if there's not already surely surely there will there's got to be yeah um and so no i totally agree with you on that it's so mind-blowing Mm -hmm. Todd uh, worked on on rattlesnakes, and so of course I was I was drawn to that. You know, oh cool genomics, something I don't know about. Cool, a challenge. Oh rattlesnakes, even better. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I applied initially because it was rattlesnakes. I <laughs> was going to do anything if I knew I was going to be working on rattlesnakes. But it's it's really mm -hmm. fascinating how my brain has changed in just one year that yeah. I no longer consider myself a herpetologist. Okay. I am now looking at myself as a genomicist. I would be willing to work on any model organism just yeah. so that I can work on the genome of that organism. Now, I'm not gonna lie, I think it's really cool that I get to work on rattlesnakes um, and draw blood from them and look at their organs and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it's, it's really cool how my mindset has changed in such a small period of time. So what you're saying yeah. is that genomics are cooler than, what is it, herp herpetologist? Herpetology. herpetology. I'd agree with that. How would, dare you say that? I hope there are no herpetologists listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> to be honest, I'm sure there's not. Um, yeah. But I have a question. Yeah. What exactly is population genetics? Like, what is it? And how is it different to functional genomics? Yeah, so in short, so functional genomics would be, you know, looking at, uh, you know, trans transcript transcriptomics, uh, proteomics, all that stuff, all the looking at gene expression. Population mm -hmm. genomics would more be looking at diversity between two different populations or the diversity within one population. Um, it's very theoretical based um versus like the functional side of things is is more you're looking at rna you're looking at how genes are expressed over time stuff like that i hope that was an okay explanation yeah no, that makes sense so why like why do you think um population genomics is important to study like what's like the overall like bigger picture for studying uh, population genomics yeah that's a really good question so population genomics 
I don't, I don't think population genomics alone is important to study. I think tying it in with the functional side is always yeah. important. Both of them together are important, but population genomics is important by looking at how diversity evolves or how species evolve into becoming their own species or what is causing them to not diverge and become their own species. So it's mm -hmm. looking at that and how traits might be passed from one population perhaps to another one, um, mm -hmm. rather than just staying just a single population. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, but yeah. without like, I feel like this is like a throwback Ellie to the evolutionary, like the one, the chat we had with Geordie. But oh, yeah. like, I'm just interested, like, what is the point? So like, for example, like if you're studying, I don't know, like the epigenetics of disease, you're interested in curing the disease, like what's the overall goal? Is it to like, I know you mentioned like climate change, is it to understand better how climate change might affect um, populations of particular species? Like what is the overall? Yeah, I mean, Liv's you... basically politely saying, what is the point? Yeah. <laughs> That's what she's trying to say, yeah. but putting it politely. Yeah. In, in a sense, so the way I like to, the, the analogy that I like to use is, you know, if you have one city here, you have another city over here, mm -hmm. I want to look at how COVID is possibly being transmitted between these two populations. Like, what is the diversity between these two populations that allows this disease to be transmitted between the two? Or maybe, maybe this population doesn't get COVID, but mm -hmm. this population's getting COVID, but yet they're right next to each other. Like, what, yeah. what is happening with these populations? So it's looking at more structure of the population on a genomic level, looking at the genomic architecture of the two populations. Do you include any sort of like behavioral differences in that as well? So like obviously with population, are you, are you including kind of like environmental factors, um, behavioral things, or is it solely the genomics? So our lab focuses solely on the genomics. We do a lot of collaborations. Um, but those, those are really good questions because absolutely behavior might have something to do with it. Even geographical regions, like if we're talking about rattlesnakes, yeah. looking at different populations located, you know, on a gradient from like Northern United States to Southern United States, there's absolutely going to be a, a gradient on elevation and geography. So those are things that we take into consideration when we look at things, um, mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah. But it's not something that your lab focuses on. No, no, we're no. primarily just genomics. Yeah. So sorry to come back to the, like what I was asking before. You know, when you were talking about the cold COVID thing. Mm -hmm. So to me that it like the, when you explain like that, it's very clear, like why someone would want to study that because you are, I don't know, I guess you're trying to control the spread of COVID in these mm -hmm. two populations. So what is I just don't get it I'm sorry if I'm being really stupid but I don't get like what the overall thing is so in terms of like rats, like why do, like why do we care basically like why do we care about how species evolve you know yeah so I mean species lives gonna be angering a lot of evolutionary biologists right now <laughs> the thing is like I get it like I I actually do get it I'm just trying to like yeah no, no, this no, is no. really I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. Because I feel like um I feel like 
so for me in whenever I'm talking about science like I always like to think that any sort of science that we do basically is going to like help I don't know like further our understanding like it's going to benefit us in the future somehow and when it comes to like evolutionary genomics or population genomics I always struggle to make the link between like studying something and how it's going to benefit us in the future I know it doesn't always have to but I'm just wondering is it going to you know Um, yeah um so no this is okay I love I actually love that we're talking about this and it's it's challenging me like actually thoroughly answering this is challenging me and I love this because and we could talk about this later but like I am so invested in outreach for the Mm -hmm. public and like you know telling people that I work on rattlesnakes for my research and you know looking at how species evolve and and all that stuff like people look at me cross-eyed like what why why (laughs) they're just rattlesnakes so this is important this is an important talk to have Mm -hmm. um and I think you know there's a lot of different answers for this one Mm -hmm. of them is you know looking at how the ecosystem functions, keeping a stable ecosystem overall. You know, you, you may have people out there that like don't care about the environment, but you know, bringing this back because we are a very egocentric species ourselves. You know, when we do yeah. research, we wanna know what is the benefit gonna be? And it always comes back to humans. How is this gonna benefit yeah. us? And mm-hmm. so I think on a very broad, if we talk very broad here, understanding how species are evolving or traits are being passed between populations can in a very broad sense give us an insight into how that ecosystem is functioning for a healthy environment that can sustain us as well. Now if we were going to talk about this just specifically about rattlesnakes the one thing I always like to tie this back to where people are like oh okay your research is cool is that we can apply venom to this. How is venom evolving? What does that mean for the medical world in terms of yeah. you know, uh, anti-venom for people? So I always end up tying it back to the medical world, but of course there's, I, I don't actually work on venom. Um, I guess that's something that we don't necessarily, like that wouldn't cross mine and Liv's mind really, because we don't walk out on the streets on a daily basis and think, oh God, what would I do if I got bitten by a rattlesnake today? Like, <laughs> yeah. That's just, that's not anything that crosses our mind, you know? Exactly. And one of the reasons that I'm very grateful that I do not live in the US because <laughs> I couldn't cope with that daily, that daily panic. Oh, um, come on. It's where I walk outside and there's, it's just like, oh man, what's the chance of being rained on by a snake today? None. They're not just like flying out. For, okay, I will tell you though, when I went to Africa for the first time, I swore mambas were just going to rain down on me the second I got off the plane. No. Yeah. No. Oh my God. They really, I really don't like snakes. I, I've seen one. Oh I've seen God. one uh, in the UK. Um, did you not come around when I had snakes? No, I never came around when you uh, had snakes. You would snakes. have hated it because you literally would have been sleeping right next to them. I, I wouldn't have been sleeping next to them. <laughs> You'd have been on the floor. One of them didn't even have a lock on it, this lock broke. Oh, God. Every night it was like, is it going to get out tonight? Who knows? I was on a date I I think it was my my second date that I went on with, we're not together anymore, this may be why. (laughs) (laughs) I went on a walk in the woods and there was an adder and I screamed and like leapt into this poor bloke's arms and was like, carry me! I just panicked like oh, that was so 
it was just nada. Like nah, you know, was, they're the worst we've got over here, but they're oh, no, can't cope. They're horrible. That would be a romantic date for me. <laughs> it wasn't romantic at all. <laughs> but um yeah, no, my my boyfriend knows. Well, we don't live together anymore because we're in a long distance relationship. But when when we were living together, he always knew that there was always a possibility that he was going to come home and there was going to be another tank with another snake in it, or the freezer was going to be full of another roadkill snake that I found in a freezer. Roadkill snake. What do you do with roadkill snakes? So you don't I, eat them, do you? They're delicious. I'm kidding. I used to teach herpetology in the spring and right. some of the labs were uh, to dissect snakes. And so in uh, order to okay. have snakes, we would collect roadkill. Um, I have still since moved to Texas and I still collect roadkill when I see it so long as it's intact because when I do teach in person and if there's an opportunity to do a dissection, it's great to have students explore organisms that aren't, you know, a typical, you know, you just open it up and it's like, okay, that's what the stomach should be. Great. That's where the liver should be. Okay. Wonderful. God, Snakes can you imagine hurt. going to Kat's house and making yourself a drink and being like, I'll just grab some ice out the freezer. Shall I open it up? And you've got a roadkill snake in there. Oh yeah. There's a couple rattlesnakes in there right now. A bull python. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> To be fair, my uh, my PhD supervisor has like an assortment of animal sperm in his freezer. So that is maybe it's just awesome. a thing. <laughs> maybe it's just a thing that you have weird things in your freezers when you become an academic. Yeah, we're biologists. You're, you're just you know part of the fun in dating a biologist. <laughs> oh, so funny. What do bioinformaticians yeah. have in their freezer? <laughs> pizza. Yeah, pizza. <laughs> Ice cream. <laughs> Comfort food for when your computer crashes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you answered my question. Um, so thank you. I understand now the link has been made. Okay. Okay, good. Um, yeah. It's always when, so like, as soon as someone says it, I'm like, oh, Liv, you're so stupid. How did you not make that link? But oh. it's not stupid. I know it's not. But, like, when someone says it, you're like, oh, that's so obvious, you know? But it's, it's yeah. hard to make the link. And, and, and so that's something I've been struggling with. And obviously, like, I just finished my first year. I've got many years to come to work on this. But um, I, as a biologist, feel a greater importance like I love doing research and of course I want to publish I love I love uh publishing <laughs> I love reaping in that reward <laughs> um, <laughs> um but I feel a greater need and call to to make my science accessible to the public not just I'm not talking about just like open open source publications. I literally, like, cause like if I published a manuscript, you know, a genomics manuscript in an, you know, open access uh, journal and my boyfriend were to pick up that, that manuscript and read it, he'd be like, well, what, the what is it? What am I reading? And so I think communicating science to the public 
is really important. And I think some a realm of science that is really lacking in the general public understanding um, is, is the world of molecular biology or genomics overall. I mean, look at, look at what's happening right now with COVID and the general public and how they're perceiving, you know, the vaccine and stuff. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's important to be able to communicate science so that the public has a better understanding. Um, and so with me being in the world of genomics, I of course want to be able to effectively communicate that with anybody I meet, because I can have a conversation with just, I'll have a conversation with anybody about what I do, you know, and I want every single person to be able to understand me, whether it be another academic or just a random person that I'm talking to at the grocery store, but then, then add in the fact that I work on rattlesnakes. Yeah, I was about to say. And it's, it's even harder. You have no idea how many times, like I might go to, you know, a bar after work, have a beer and, you know, I start having a conversation with, you know, somebody next to me and the you know, they're, oh, you're a PhD student. That's awesome. Like, what do you do your research on? And I'll say, I do, I, you know, I do population genomics of, you know, different populations of rattlesnakes throughout the, and it's like done. They shut down, shut down. Like rattlesnakes. Uh, I have gotten so many people tell me like a good rattlesnake is only when it's dead. I'm like, oh my you. god. <laughs> okay. But you have to like. So I was gonna say. I was. Sorry, oh, I was gonna say it must be so. No, you're fine. It must be. I was gonna say that I thought people would be like more interested because like the minute you say rattlesnakes, people would be like, oh my god, that's so cool. Like, tell me more. Tell me more. Whereas when you say DNA methylation, they're like, okay, I don't know what that is, and they completely shut off. Ellie, you can easily be like, I study sperm. No one interested. can get enough of that. Everyone loves like it. that. Interested. <laughs> so... Honestly, I've got people's attention. The minute I say, <laughs> I study sperm, everyone's like, tell me more. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah, so in, it's it's interesting. In, in California, um, people are, are very interested in the research, you know, on rattlesnakes, but there's a lot of outreach opportunities. You know, my master's advisor, Emily does outreach where she actually will uh, take a rattlesnake and she'll talk to the general public about it. What is it doing? Notice it's not striking. Notice it's just minding its business. Um, you know, when we deal with rattlesnakes, we have these plastic tubes that we fit over their head. We kind of move their body up into the tube until it kind of gets nice and snug and squished onto the tube. And then we're able to pick it up. And what Emily will do is, you know, show the public, like, you know, if everybody gets into a line, I'll let you guys touch the rattlesnake. And, you know, people are like, wow, like, this is cool. And like, you start learning about how beautiful these organisms are and that they actually don't really want to mess with us. And that's something I've noticed that now living in Texas, there isn't, there's this complete disconnect with people and, you know, the reptiles that live around them. And I want to be able to bring that here to, um, you know, where I'm living to be able to talk to the public about it. Because, you know, in Texas, I get negative responses versus when I was in California, I get like, whoa, that's so cool. I don't like snakes, but that's cool. Versus here, I get the like, nope, cut the head off. Nope. <laughs> so why do you think that is? Do you think it's because there's like, do you think it's because there's more, like, are there more deadly snakes in Texas that people are more afraid of them and don't like them or? No, it's not that there's more deadly. It's I just think a lack that, of outreach. Yeah, I just think, you know, people, you know, 
there's always that that whole my grandpa said that he saw an eight foot snake and like that whole like no no your grandpa did not I'm sorry but no he did not <laughs> maybe in the Amazon maybe he did but no <laughs> um you know and like people grow up like learning through their family you know because I when I grew up I was I was deathly afraid of snakes my dad always told me like if you see a rattlesnake run like from what what am I running away from they keep they don't have legs they can't chase after us they're not going to chase after us but I grew up with that fear in mind already and mm -hmm. so you know, when I have done outreach in the past, I tend to reach out to children more. Children seem to be more yeah. receptive to seeing how fascinating snakes are. You know, just recently, yeah, a World Snake Day, World Snake Day just passed, by the way. Um, and I was back in California and there was, um, Emily was doing an outreach event and I watched this little girl. Uh, so I saw your video from that. Yeah, mm -hmm. this girl was so scared to walk up to the table because there were, you know, harmless snakes that were, you know, she could touch it and stuff. By the end of the event, she had the snake around her neck. She was so excited. Um, but her parents, her parents were still like, mm, it's okay. So mm -hmm. it's like, I wish someone had done that with me. <laughs> <laughs> There's still hope for you. There's still hope. I don't think there is. So. There is, Ellie. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, I've oh, had it before. Did I take you like somewhere to get over your I fear? I think you should. I stayed no. around. No. I stayed around my dad's during like the last Christmas break, and I had a random dream that there was a snake in my bed, and like I woke up screaming, and I woke the whole house up because I was like screaming like ah snake. Ellie, you're such a drama queen. Oh, I know. <laughs> I hate them. They, I, I just. I find them interesting. I do find them weirdly interesting. And once I can, like my initial reaction when I see one on TV is like, oh, look away. But once I like can convince myself to actually not look away or at the zoo or something. So can we talk a little bit about your research? Yeah, so like, totally. We've mentioned obviously population genomics, we've mentioned rattlesnakes. What exactly is your PhD all about? What is sort of like your main... PhD topic? So I don't necessarily have a dissertation set just yet. Todd, Todd is super cool in how he forms the dissertation. So, or for his grad students. So he is very heavy in wanting to get his students published, which I love that. So mm -hmm. Rather than saying, okay, this is gonna, here's the layout of your dissertation. Here's obviously your interests. Let's do this for chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. It's more of like, okay, let's just start getting published. Let's get publications. And, you know, there's, once you get your first publication, of course, there's gonna be follow up questions on that. So then you do your second publication, then your third, right? Those publications ultimately end up being my chapters for my dissertation, which is awesome because I get to put that on my CV rather than just like, okay, this is my dissertation. I guess that can go on my CV. It's more of like, well, here I did some first author publications and it happened to also be my dissertation along the way. Um, and so right now what I'm looking at is this hybridization between the rattlesnakes and looking at the genomic architecture of these populations and how that is forming. Why in nature are these hybrid zones still persisting, being that they may not be necessarily as fit as the parental lineages? Why is nature selecting for these populations to exist? And so you can have, you can have 
two different species of rattlesnake and they overlap sympatrically and they create this hybrid zone. But then you can have another region where the same two species also overlap and they're not creating a hybrid zone. Why? Why? What so that's- by, um, Sorry, what do you mean by overlap? Like they exist in the same area. Oh, like, okay, yeah, yeah. Same habitat, they are existing and just existing together, right? And in some regions, they're actually reproducing together and creating offspring. And then in some areas where they overlap, they're not creating offspring. Mm -hmm. So why, why are they creating hybrids here, but not down here? You know what I mean? And so nobody really knows the answer to that. People do study hybrids in other species, like hybridization in birds is very common and butterflies is really common, but nobody's really looking at hybridization so much in, uh, in rattlesnakes or reptiles overall. So that's something that I'm going to be exploring a little more throughout my PhD. Um, and another question. Yes. So, you know how I, like, <laughs> I'm rambling. I'm so sorry. No, you're not at all. You're not at all. Cool. So you know how like, obviously dogs are all one species, <laughs> right? But with dogs, yeah. you have breeds. So is it sort of the same with snakes? No. This thing, I'm trying to do this thing where I don't say, this is a stupid question, but but Ellie then started laughing at me when I was asking that question. But I'm sorry. <laughs> but I'm sorry. I just ask all questions with, can I ask a question? Or this is a stupid question. I'm trying to stop doing that because it's not a stupid question at all. Are there different yeah. breeds, like something similar to breeds in rattlesnakes? So breeds is more is more in like your domesticated animals like dogs and cats. Right. So That's you know when you say that you have like two snakes and they overlap. They're two different species. It they're would be like okay, so their offspring aren't fertile. Correct. Like yeah. I'm trying to okay, think. Got like, it, got it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um like a donkey, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, got it. Got it. Got it. Stop laughing at me, Ellie. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't. These are totally valid questions. Like, they they, are, they're they're fully head, valid questions. It comes into I'm my just, head and I want to know the I'm, answer. I'm asking it from now on and I will not be saying that this is a stupid question. I will not be doing it. So for anyone listening, if you think that the questions I ask are stupid, too bad. Too bad. They're not. Exactly. So, yeah, and so it, it gets a little more complicated than just like, you know, saying one rattlesnake, or let's not, let's not even talk about rattlesnakes. Let's, let's do, um, what, what is it? What is a mule? It's a donkey and a horse? Is that what it is? I don't know. I I think so. Okay, maybe let's not talk about, okay, I don't know how to mammal. I don't know mammals at all. So let's go back to snakes. I can talk about snakes. So you can have one species of snake, right? and another species of snake. And yep. they come together, they reproduce and they create an offspring. Well, between these two parents from different species, one species might have a certain trait or a certain gene that is favorable for that species, that it's, it makes the species fit. And mm -hmm. this other parent might have that same thing going for them. Well, when they come together, what's the gene expression? What genes are gonna be transferred to the offspring? And so you don't also just have offspring that are gonna be just this like 50-50 split. 
between parental lineages. You might have offspring that might be 80% more one parent and then 20% the other parent. I literally had to do the math there. I'm like, wait, 80% of the rest, 20%. Okay. 80 plus what is 100? <laughs> <laughs> so, so look at, so, so knowing that not everything is created equal, that then you have this huge spectrum of hybrids. We now want to look into those and, and ask ourselves like, okay, why, what are the genes that are being expressed here? Like what's favorable? What's more fit? Maybe because when we talk about fitness, we always think about like, oh, like the fitness of this animal is decreased. Well, what about if they, you know, take on traits that make them more favorable now, hybrids aren't, nece aren't necessarily sterile, like they can reproduce most, don't get me wrong, most hybrids are sterile um, when, you know, if they try to reproduce, but some can reproduce, but they may not create offspring that they're fit. They, they will probably die pretty right. quickly, shortly after being born. Um, and so it's, it's not this black and white area. It's very, very, very variable which makes it absolutely interesting to study. Yeah, I can imagine. So do you have to like catch the hybrids? Because just to study them, you must like have to find these hybrids and draw their blood, right? I've just got oh, so cool. images of cat with a big old snake net running around looking for hybrid snakes. <laughs> hybrids. But if you want to study the hybrid, you got to catch the hybrid. Yeah, are they, are they like visibly clear? Yeah, so we collect snakes. Um, we actually just finished up a field season uh, in early June where we went up to Colorado and collected some snakes. Um, and don't get me wrong, like a lot of genomics labs do not do field work. My, like you, like, you know, to have a genomics lab, all you need is someone in, to ship you some DNA and say, okay, here you go. Here's what you need. Yeah. But I adore my advisor for taking us out into the field, especially after a, a rough year, uh, you know, behind your computer. It's so nice to just get out into nature and yeah. go collect some snakes and go camping with your lab. Like you really bond with everybody. Um, and so, yeah, we, we drove up to Colorado and we collected, um, you know, from the parental uh, population area where we know that there should be a strong parental, like meaning that it's this specific species is right here in this general area. This other specific species is in this general area. And then we know that right here in the middle, there should be hybrids um, yeah. present. And so we drive around to these different um, areas and we look for rattlesnakes. And it literally means that we go out either in the morning when it starts to get warm, or we go out towards dusk and we look for them when the sun is starting to set. Or we road cruise. Road cruising is fun, meaning um, we get in a car and we drive up and down the roads looking for noodles hanging out on the warm roads at night. Yeah, yeah, that's that's about it. Um, noodles is in the food, huh? Noodles is in the food. Noodles. No, I'm sorry. No, I'm laughing. You should have said. Sorry, I refer to snakes as noodles. <laughs> I can't believe you laughed at me. I cannot believe you laughed at me and then asked that question. Because <laughs> if I was driving up and down, it would be for noodles. It would be for food, not snakes. 
But I did think, why would there be no cheers the talking about snakes here? I need some clarity. <laughs> stop the car, stop the car. There's spaghetti on the road. We gotta get the spaghetti. Why are we gonna get our dinner tonight, guys? It just if, I could, if I could walk away from this podcast and have people think that as a biologist, I'm collecting spaghetti noodles off the road, I think I've su- I think I've succeeded. You did. Good podcast. I'm, I'm very happy with that. <laughs> um, oh, you know, we uh, <laughs> we collect snakes off the road. Um, common names for snakes are, of course, you know, snakes, rattlesnakes, danger noodles, noodles, dingle doodles, all the cute dingle doodles. <laughs> dingle doodles. I, I commonly refer to them as dingle doodles. Um, <laughs> scientific terms, you know, you got to keep this scientifically professional. Um, always. Always. Yeah, we well, also know that the noodles are hybrids. So, yeah, they. How do we know they're hybrids? Morphologically, you can you can get an idea because they might look different, but that's you know looking at phenotype alone, like you you can't just like say oh no that's a hybrid right there. Um, you so this isn't the first time that my lab has been to this area of Colorado. Like they've gone sampling there before, so they have a general idea of what the hybrid zone is. So very grateful for that. But then what we do is when we collect our samples from the snakes. We bring it back, we extract the DNA, we sequence the DNA, and then we're able to look at the variability, um, whether it be in the SNPs, and then we can come up with, you know, what's called a hybrid index. And that's when we're able to look at, you know, okay, that snake caught at that location right there is 80%, that species, 20%, that species, or whoa, we got a 50-50. We actually got a 50-50. We need to know that specific location right there because there might be more 50-50. So in order to like fully know that we have hybrids, we have to go through the whole extraction, sequencing, analyzing. Yeah. It must be so quite a difficult process because you can't just look at them and be like, right, here we go, we've got one. Yeah, and, and, and behavior-wise, I mean, between I'm thinking about two specific uh, snakes uh, species, like behavior-wise, they're very different. And so, you know, even behavior wise, like they might act a little differently, but I don't even know if anybody's actually looked at that before, uh, the behavior of hybrids. I don't think a lot of research has been done on that. Phenotypically, mm-hmm. they might look a little differently, but still rattlesnakes are so variable in how they look anyways. You can have a single species and the variability in how they look, like they can range from the color of black all the way up to this neon green. And people think that they're like all these different species, like, no, sorry, you live in an area that just has one species. They're just so variable. Yeah. So, well, I've learned that there's different species of rattlesnakes because I genuinely didn't know this. Like, I didn't know that this was a thing. I totally assumed that rattlesnakes were a species. What, um, like, what is your favorite finding? So like, so far, like, what is like, been one thing that you've like found in your research if you want to answer this that you've been like oh my god that's so cool hmm this is gonna be so weird maybe not maybe it won't be weird um (laughs) quite honest everything has been like every single thing that I've done so far 
always end up saying like, this is so cool. You know, when I'm extracting <laughs> DNA and I get the little pellet of DNA at the bottom of my little tube and then I'm able to successfully take out the, not the substrate, the, what am I trying to say? The supernatant, when I'm bringing out the supernatant and the DNA pellets in there and then I, I cubit it and I look at the concentration, like that is the most exciting thing in yeah. the world. When I am able to take a code and run it and like do Bayesian inferences yeah. on some data and it actually goes through and then I could build a phylogenetic tree off of that. That is so cool. <laughs> you know, so like, I don't have a, a, a one specific thing just yet that has been like the coolest thing because everything that I'm coming across is brand new to me. Yeah. That everything is bright and shiny like it's so cool I don't know if that makes sense but oh yeah it does yeah it does <laughs> yeah someone asked me the question the same question the other day and I was like um luckily they like they sent me the question beforehand so I had time to think about it so I had time to come up with an answer but originally I was like um I literally don't know like it's a difficult one to answer especially when you're not that far on as well um it's difficult to like it's a def definitely a difficult question to answer there there literally was a, a point in my life where I was a manager at the Hello Kitty store and the exciting <laughs> aspect of my day was stocking Hello Kitty mugs on a shelf <laughs> the fact that I am now playing with DNA mm -hmm. from rattlesnake livers yeah it so blows it's a bit of an upgrade is what it's a bit of an upgrade from stacking Hello bit. Kitty it mugs. Depends who you speak to. It depends who you speak to. Some people enjoy... Absolutely. Well, no, yeah, 100%. But for you personally, when rattlesnakes is your passion, academia is your passion, it's been an upgrade. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. I tell, I tell my students all the time that, you know, find your passion. If that means, and I mean this wholeheartedly, if that means you want to be the best barista at Starbucks and that's your passion, do yeah. it. Yes, you yeah. can do that. You want to be an astronaut? You could do that too. Yeah. yeah. So it doesn't matter as long, as long as you just love what you do. And so far I am loving what I do. I have definitely found my niche and my passion. Oh yeah. yeah. Not the Hello Kitty store. Genomics. <laughs> no disrespect to Hello Kitty. She's cute, but no. So what's like, um, okay, two questions. What's like the next steps for your research? And then second of all, if you had to um, research one, say um, your PI said to you, like you're not allowed to start, like look at multiple things. You have to focus on one project. What would you pick and why? So let's go with the second question first. Second question first. Okay, yeah. so if I had to pick one specific project. Like if you just had to answer one question, like focus on one question and that's all you're allowed to focus on, what would you pick and why? Like, what do you think is the most interesting question right now in your field? I am really interested in, so the broad question of why do hybrid zones exist? Within that question, um, looking at incompatibilities and dysfunction within the hybrid zone. What are the incompatibilities and dys dysfunction as in like gene expression within the mm -hmm. hybrid zone and, and gene selection 
from these parental lineages. I am so fascinated by that. What do you mean by incompatibilities? So incompatibilities meaning that if a gene, let's just say a gene is selected for uh, in a offspring, in a hybrid individual. So a gene from one parental lineage is uh, selected for there might be a maybe an upstream upstream effect where uh, a coupling effect that is where mm-hmm. that means that having this other gene that is also selected for or coupled with can create an incompatibility in that hybrid individual and so having maybe both of these genes together or in combination with another gene that might come in from the other parental lineage might create dysfunction in the hybrid individual, which ultimately just means lower fitness. That just means lower fitness, chances of survival are far and few, reproduction from this offspring with another rattlesnake, whether it be another um, hybrid or you know something from a parental lineage, uh, fitness is gonna be a lot lower as well. So just looking at gene expression overall. So you might, see- like, I might be asking a question that's like out of your um, field, but like, so you know when there's hybrids and they like they're normally not like their offspring normally aren't fertile, is that because of um, like incompatibilities? Like can that be because of incompatibilities? It could be, yeah. It could very well be because of incompatibilities. Yeah. So do we know? Again, you might not know the answer to this. Sorry if I'm asking like questions that aren't relevant. No, it's cool. It's super interesting. <laughs> do we know like um, why um, offspring normally aren't fertile? Or is there like a hundred, like, is there like tons of different reasons that they might be and we're not? Sorry, Ellie, yeah, you might know the answer. To I was going to say that is a number of reasons, isn't it? So, but don't you think it's really weird that like, well, actually, no, because I was about to say that every time they're not fertile, but Kat, you said it's not every single time that they're not fertile. So sometimes they are fertile. Okay. So a lot of it is to do with the mismatching like chromosomal size isn't it when uh the oh, yeah, of course yeah in hybrids and sometimes by chance you can create an offspring a lot of the time uh the embryo won't be viable is there a trend in the ones that normally are fertile so like are they normally i don't know like are there are there like sets of chromosomes normally got like, quite similar in the ones that are normally like so they normally with hybrids cat might be able to correct me but i think with hybrids you can get offspring but they won't then be able to go on and have offspring themselves yeah yeah so i don't think there's necessarily a trend with the offspring as to how they can get there but their offspring do we know like why is there a trend with their offspring oh yeah no i get what you're saying yeah i get what you're saying yeah got it but in the ones that no okay i got it i got it Okay. It was really good. Yeah, I I could not have been able to uh, explain that so well, Ellie. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Really quickly. So you mentioned as well earlier about how, so for example, like some of the offspring could potentially be um, of a, a higher fitness. Is that a theory or is that something that's actually been observed that the offspring of, or like hybrids actually have higher fitness? No, the, hy- the hybrid offspring would generally have lower fitness. Hybrid- has, it, has it actually been observed that there are some that do have higher fitness or not? I don't know the answer to that, actually. That's a really, I don't. 
I don't know if higher fitness has, at least in rattlesnakes, I'm not entirely sure about the bird and butterflies uh, papers that I have seen. I need to read them. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I'm not entirely sure about that. It'd be interesting. We've got to know. We've got to know. It's got to be out there. And not maybe not necessarily in in rattlesnakes. Alexa, just always lower fitness. But I I'm interested in like if there was a case where there is high fitness, like what can you learn from that about like you know like how how what can you learn about gene expression in hybrids? You know, yeah. Like yeah, that was interesting. Anyway, my next my other question was what are the next steps for your research? That's what it was. Um. Yeah, wow, that's a, <laughs> a board uh, one. <laughs> next steps for my research. So right now, what I am working on is a lot of phylogenetics and building trees off of Asian inferences and maximum likelihood. Um, I'm specifically looking at mitochondrial DNA um, from rattlesnakes and building trees on that, but also on the sidelines looking at um, RNA-seq data to look at gene expression within the hybrid zones. Um, Ultimately, the end result would be to look at whole genome data sets for um, a specific population of rattlesnakes that are in New Mexico and Arizona. Um, So yeah, I I think it's a lot (laughs) to answer that question, like a lot is, is next. Um, in terms of my research. And so I I think Nikki kind of talked about this in her interview as well, but, you know, my lab, we're always working on different things all at the same time. And it's great. It really is. Sometimes I want to pull my hair out, but I think it's, it's really great at being able to teach me all of us to multitask and to prioritize things. Um, because ultimately when you go into academia, I think that's always what it is, is just multitasking yeah. at all times and constantly juggling, constantly juggling and doing black magic. Um, so it's, yeah, I, it's, it's hard to say like, okay, what's, what's the next step. It's more of like, what are the next 50 steps that <laughs> my research yeah. is going to go in? And it's, you know, it's always changing. Um, you know, my PI is, is very like gets excited about different things. And like one thing might come up or like a pub, a paper might be published and then that might spark an interest and like, oh my God, we got to do this. And then I'm like, yeah, we're going to do this. This is going to be exciting. And it might be just (laughs) completely taking all these other 20 things that I was just working on, pushing that aside. And now we're working on the new bright and shiny thing. And it's awesome. Like it's always something, it's always something exciting is happening. So I don't know if that was a good enough question of like, what's next with your research? Uh, sky's the limit. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Sounds like such a cool lab to be in. I yeah, it really does actually. Um, I love it. I, I love it, but I'm, I'm a pretty chaotic person myself. <laughs> um, maybe that's why he likes you. It's not really the truck. He just didn't want to compliment you too much. I, I think I like to think it was the truck. I thought I felt pretty pretty cool. I mean, Eva is Eva that is, is cool. Eva is great. that is cool. Is epigenetics a thing in rattlesnakes? So you know how like some organisms, for example, like don't have DNA methylation. Is 
is that a thing in rattlesnakes? Do you know if that's a thing in rattlesnakes? Does anyone look at, surely there must be someone looking at if it exists epigenetics in rattlesnakes? Yeah, there, there are labs that do epigenetics on snakes, reptiles. Um, we don't do epigenetic work too much. Because um, I feel like that would be a cool, like, especially if you're looking at gene expression, it'd be a very cool thing to like one day be able to incorporate, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm, epigenetic stuff is, is I'm very interested in that. It's something like always in the back of my mind is the effects of epigenetics on gene expression. Um, in When I was in my master's, there was a grad student that wanted to look at epigenetic effects of mother, like looking at stress hormone and from the mother to the offspring to see if maybe if, you know, the mom rattlesnake was super stressed while she had her young in her, if the uh, corticosterone levels would be higher mm-hmm. in the offspring. Um, unfortunately, it didn't end up uh, happening, but yes, people are very interested in epigenetic work. I mean, there's enough cool stuff going on in your lab and you're doing enough cool stuff already, so. <laughs> Um, I mean, you never know. <laughs> never know. Someone you else out there might be looking at it or might yeah. be wanting to. Someone might hear this podcast and be inspired. Oh, great. I got to go tilt pod right now. Dude, we got to do epigenetic work. I just leaked. I just leaked some ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie, Ellie. I feel like sometimes we do come up with some pretty cool, like, sorry to blow our own trumpet, but I feel like we do in our discussions. I just think cool if ideas, you want an idea, come to us. Come and listen to our podcast, you know, like, <laughs> so not to blow our own trumpet or anything. Anyway, um, I'll probably wrap it up. Uh, we yeah. Spoke time. I don't, yeah, we spoke for a while. <laughs> um, so, yeah, last thing we always ask is uh, you mentioned you was very, like, you love outreach and stuff. So if anyone, like, wants to contact you, do you have, like, any academic Twitters? Like, is are you happy for us to include your email and all of that good stuff? Yeah, um, my Twitter is Cat Ivy, and then the number two. I am actually looking at my phone right <laughs> now. That's okay. Um, we'll put it in the thingy. Just knowing that you have a Twitter, and we'll link yeah. it. Yeah. So, amazing. Yeah. We'll link all of that. We'll put it all. <laughs> cool. Cool. Okay. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm not sorry for my questions. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate the challenge. (laughs) This is good. This is good uh, good stuff for me to think about. (laughs) And I appreciate you teaching me what phallic means and that there are several species of rattlesnakes. We've learned a lot. Not that that was my biggest takeaways, but they were some of my (laughs) biggest takeaways. (laughs) Unintended. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at The Genomics Lab. That's got a capital G and a capital L. You can actually also find both of us on Instagram at a genomics PhD and at PhD underscore Ellie. Finally, be sure to subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform and we will see you all in the next episode. Thank you again for listening.